Support comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies. Held on Fridays in May, each film touches upon Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, including Goya or the hard way to enlightenment and the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie at nortonsimon.org. You have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from Alleist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes, too, when you donate now at laist.com slash sweeps. Good morning, it's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Great to have you with us. Coming up later on the program, why TikTok is so sticky, the incredibly popular social media app will be talking about what's behind its appeal even as more and more governmental organizations are banning the downloading of the TikTok app on government-owned devices. Coming up later this hour, we take a look at some of LA's landmark restaurants. Some of the greats are still operating and have been doing so for many decades. Multi-generations of families have enjoyed visiting the restaurants. Others are departed but we remember them. That's coming up with a new book, L.A.'s Landmark Restaurants. But we begin with the news out of New Mexico, where actor Alec Baldwin and a weapons specialist will be charged with involuntary manslaughter, that in the fatal shooting of the cinematographer on the set of the movie Rust. The Santa Fe District Attorney issued a statement earlier today announcing the charges against Baldwin and Hannah Gutierrez-Reed. Reed supervised weapons on the set of Rust. Helena Hutchins died shortly after being wounded during rehearsals at a ranch on the outskirts of Santa Fe. The incident occurred back in October of 2021. Baldwin was pointing a pistol at the cinematographer when the gun went off. Officials said the assistant director who handed Baldwin the gun has signed an agreement to plead guilty to negligent use of a deadly weapon. Joining us to talk about the charges and the investigation, which has gone on well over a year, is Dominic Patton, senior editor and TV critic at Deadline. Dominic, good morning. Good morning, Larry. So what uh, do we understand about uh, the reasoning behind these specific charges? Well, I mean, this all comes down to negligence and safety on set. Um, the, the Santa Fe, they're called the first judicial attorney in the state of New Mexico, but essentially let's call her the Santa Fe DA. What they've said is, is that basically is that there was no, there's no room for the kind of negligence that occurred on the film set in New Mexico, and they take this very seriously. This is not unexpected to some degree, but not to others. The, the, the DA had already requested over $600,000 in additional funding from the state late last year. She received over 300000 for it. She indicated at the time there were four individuals that she was considering prosecuting. This was before she received the final report from the Santa Fe Sheriff's Office, where the FBI assisted them on that. Among those four people, she had indicated already that she was considering actor Alec Baldwin. So there was some sense that this was coming, but the way this is coming and the, the weight of these charges 
is definitely, definitely kneecapping. Uh, Baldwin could face up to 18 months in prison if the jury found that he acted without due caution and circumspection when he pointed the replica of the vintage uh, Pieta Colt 45 at Hutchins. Uh, also on the second charge, uh, could face a mandatory five-year jail sentence because a firearm was used during the commission of a lawful act, as the raw lead, uh, law reads. Also with us is Loyola Law School professor of criminal law, former federal prosecutor, Laurie Levinson. Laurie, can you explain just a bit more about what these specific charges mean in terms of alleged conduct? Yes. So under New Mexico law, very much like California's law, there's a charge of involuntary manslaughter. It's the lowest level of a homicide charge, but it's very serious. And what they've charged here is that Alec Baldwin and his co-defendant were negligent on the set, negligent in terms of how they handled the weapon, and it'd be maybe more negligent than that since they haven't actually shown us the charges. When you have somebody who's otherwise doing a lawful act, filming a movie, it's a lawful act, but you do it in this negligent way, and here they think it's very negligent, then you're actually facing a criminal charge. So the question in this case that still is out there is, you know, how did that bullet get in that gun when everyone thought that they were not using live ammunition? And was it a result of Alec Baldwin's negligence, someone else's negligence? Here their investigation is pointing the finger at Alec Baldwin. He said in his defense, first of all, that he didn't pull the trigger of the gun. The FBI has has reportedly examined the gun, found that it was operating properly, meaning it would be difficult to understand with a revolver how the bullet would fire without the trigger being pulled. But he also said that he was told by the assistant director and by the armorer that the that the gun was not loaded. And he claimed that the cinematographer asked him to point the gun towards her as she was composing the shot and that the gun just went off. Um, now, he he doesn't indicate that he himself looked to see, you know, what, if any, projectiles were in the revolver before he turned it toward Helena Hutchins. So, Lori, as, as you think about that claim, what potential weight would that carry for the jury? Well, first of all, the jury's going to have to sort out who is telling the credible story here. And it really helps the prosecution that they did get David Halls to sign on to a plea agreement, because I suspect he will be testifying and pointing the finger at Baldwin. But also, even the fact that Baldwin did not look inside the gun when that's supposed to be part of the protocol may be the basis for negligence. Beyond that, there were claims that there are all sorts of other problems on the set. So I don't think that Baldwin can simply say it was someone else's job. And I also don't think it works to his advantage to say that he didn't pull the trigger. If the forensic testing shows that the gun was operating properly, then when he says he didn't pull the trigger, it begins to look like he either doesn't remember correctly or he's not telling the full story. And, Laurie, what about uh, the fact that he wasn't just an actor for hire here, but one of the producers of the film? This was uh, very much his baby. Does that factor into this at all, or is that independent of the specific charges in the shooting incident? Well, I do think it factors into why they charged him. 
because what they're saying is ultimately the buck stopped with him, that he was somebody who was responsible for what was happening on the set, including the safety and the actions of others. He had been trying to claim it's not my fault, it's the armorer. But that's why the DA in the press release said, nobody's above the law. You had a special responsibility given your role with regard to this film. We're talking with professor of criminal law at Loyola Law School of Los Angeles, Lori Levinson, a former federal prosecutor, also with us, Deadline senior editor and TV critic, Dominic Patton. Dominic, uh, you have a sense, I know this happened just over an hour ago, of, of how the, the film industry is responding to this. Well, I mean, you know, we've been covering, you know, Larry, one of the things, as you know, that I do at Deadline, I'm also in charge of our legal coverage. And and, and everything the professor said is it's just so right on and so to the point about this. The response already in Hollywood has been one of caution. You know, we saw initially after this terrible, terrible uh, event occurred, there was some talk of people no longer using guns on set, that they, they didn't, you know, there wasn't really a need to, that with technology, CGI specifically, we could get around this. Then there were people saying, yes, but for the authenticity, there were moves in the legislature and legislature in Sacramento to do something that kind of died on the vine. I think right now what we're looking at is there is going to be a tremendous intaking of breath. The fact of the matter is the terrible tragedy that happened with Helena Hutchinson has happened before in various ways. The death of Brandon Lee on the set of The Crow back in the 1990s. There are always issues around safety on any set that people take very seriously. There are protocols that people are supposed to follow. There are protocols that are set in place for safety. And in those cases, these things become very, very pertinent. Also have the reality of is that Hollywood is a business and the safety measures and the, the adherence to them can cause costs to raise, rise. And this is something that people maybe in one way or another, subconsciously or not, maybe try to find a way to cut. I think right now, though, you're going to see everybody waiting and seeing how this is going to happen. It is surprising. The DA said later today that the the defendants were aware of what was happening. It is surprising to me on one level that they did not try to also go for a plea deal like David Halls did, because certainly, as was pointed out, he will be a major, major witness in this. And we have to assume if he's done a deal with them, which will see no jail time for him, he is cooperating. But Alec Baldwin's ego or his sense of what occurred has been so strong, he is vehemently, even today, calling this a miscarriage of justice and that it, it, was, it was handled badly by the DA's office, as, by the way, as the armorer's lawyer, too, in statements that we published on Deadline this morning. So I think this is going to be a grinding legal battle once it goes to a judge and then potentially to a jury. You mentioned about uh, the tragic death of Brandon Lee in the film The Crow back in 1993. The L.A. Times uh, uh, reporting back to an interview that George Clooney gave to Mark Maron on his podcast in which Clooney said the death of Brandon Lee had a very big effect on it and said every single time I'm handed a gun on a set, every time I look at it, I open it, I show it to the person I'm pointing it to, show it to the crew, every single take, you hand it back to the armorer when you're done, you do it again, and part of it is because of what happened to Brandon. So I, I don't know if that's the universal thought. I mean, it's hard for me to imagine someone handling a, a, a gun that is capable of firing on set 
wouldn't check it for him or herself, even though an armorer has signed off on it. But but Dominic, how, you know, how much of, of uh, that sort of comment from someone like Clooney um, would carry weight in this? Oh, I think it carries a high degree of weight. I mean, look, the protocols around safety on sets are very much etched in stone, but they do get a little gray when it comes to the actors themselves. Um, there are processes. David Halls handed the gun to Baldwin and said it was a cold gun. That was what Baldwin was working under the, the, the pretense he had. Many, many actors like Clooney and many actors I know, they also check it themselves. Other actors on the set of Rust had also taken measures to check their guns because, as was mentioned earlier, there had been at least three or maybe four other instances of what have been referred to as unintentional discharges, which is a very nice way of saying guns went off that shouldn't have gone off. The FBI also, in their investigation, helping the, the Santa Fe Sheriff's Office, found four additional rounds of live ammo on that set in various places. So that's five rounds of live ammo on a set. None of them are supposed to be there. How Do we know how they got there, Dominic? Well, no, but what is very interesting, and I think this is going to come out further, is one of the places where, where some blame had been pointed was at the armorer mentor, a man called Seth Kenny, who is a New Mexico local, who was helping on the film. Uh, Hannah Gers-Reed was relatively young, though her father is one of the most experienced armorers in the business. This was her second feature. She was also given another job, which is something I'm sure her lawyers are going to bring up in her defense. At one point, it was, it was assumed that maybe somehow some live rounds from this guy's company had gotten in. Hannah Reed's, uh, Hannah Gutierrez Reed's father even mentioned that to, uh, investigators. I note, Seth Kenny has not been charged. Seth Kenny has not entered a plea deal. Seth Kenny is not mentioned at all in the DA's release today. So clearly, any indication that he and his company might have been the cause of how these live rounds got on set is not on. We also know, and this is very important, not, there were so many issues on that set that the day that this accident happened, the day this terrible event happened, the entire film crew left the, the film. So Helena Hutchins, was, she remained as a cinematographer, but her entire crew left. A new crew had been brought on. That crew, that original crew left because of some financial issues, how they weren't being paid on the Indie Western, but also because of safety issues that were not being addressed. So that was something that everybody knew had happened. So you already have an, a, a, a very fragile circumstance. And I also think, as was mentioned earlier, if you take Alec Baldwin's hat as a producer, not just as a star, he must have been aware that these things were happening. So there is going to be emphasis and spotlight on that as well. Uh, again, just still so weird that live ammunition ended up uh, on the set there. Uh, Dominic, you mentioned you have a statement from the armorer. What was her response to the charges? Well, her response was essentially, I mean, I can read it to you right here. Hannah has all, is and has always been very emotional and sad about this tragic accident. But she did not commit involuntary manslaughter, says her lawyer, Jason Bowles. He's a Albuquerque uh, attorney. These charges are a result of a very flawed investigation and an inaccurate understanding of the full facts. We intend to bring the full truth to light and believe Hannah will be exonerated of wrongdoing by a jury. Now, remember, these are also, this is also a lawyer who at one point had leaned into this, this might be some sort of revenge that had happened. He never actually said it was the crew that was, that left, but kind of leaned into maybe somebody planted these here to deliberately screw up this movie. So, I mean, there's all sorts of stuff flying around here. It's going to be very interesting. And I think beyond what's happening here with the charges, I agree with you. I think there's still a decision to be made of 
where did these five live rounds come from that ended up on the set of Rust? We're talking with Dominic Patton, the senior editor and TV critic for Deadline, Laurie Levinson, Loyola Law School professor of criminal law. Professor, before I, I let you go, um, uh, I'm assuming that Baldwin and the armorer could have cut plea de- deals with the uh, New Mexico uh, Santa Fe District Attorney's Office, but um, at this point, it, it appears it's going to go to trial. W- what are the odds in a case like this that there still might be a deal? Well, there's always a possibility, but I don't think it's that likely, in part because it's been a lengthy investigation. There's been a lot of interaction between the parties. And because of the nature of the charges, I mean, Alec Baldwin has a lot to lose, but they brought an involuntary manslaughter, not a murder charge. So where do they negotiate that down to? Maybe no time. Um, And the other thing is, is that I think that the prosecution's case and investigation will be put under a microscope. And just like we've seen in other high-profile cases, right now it looks really bad for Baldwin. But as his lawyers, who are very capable, just go through line by line what witnesses said, what was and was not done in this investigation, they just need to poke enough holes to have a reasonable doubt. So that'll be part of what's considered if there is any plea bargaining to come. Lori, thank you as always. Great to talk with you. We appreciate it, even under these tragic circumstances of the death of cinematographer Helena Hutchins, which we're revisiting with these charges. Uh, Dominic Patton, thank you very much. We appreciate your being with us. Thank you. It's Air Talk on KPCC. Coming up, we'll talk with George Geary about his new book, L.A.'s Landmark Restaurant, celebrating the legendary locations where Angelinos have dined for generations. I want to hear from you, your favorite, whether it's still around or the restaurant's long gone, your favorite landmark Los Angeles area restaurant, 866-893-5722. Why is it so special to you? We'll talk about these great places when we come back in just one minute. need to know about the new book, L.A.'s Landmark Restaurants, is the beautiful neon sign of Philippe's is on the front and Cantor's legendary neon sign is on the back. That tells you right there all you need to know. And in its beautiful full-color pages are wonderful examples of the great restaurants of greater Los Angeles. Recipes that are specialties of those restaurants are there. And it combines restaurants that are uh, lamented, long gone, but had a huge role in Los Angeles culture and others that are still with us many decades later. Joining us is George Gary. He's also the author of L.A.'s Legendary Restaurants, the new book, L.A.'s Landmark Restaurants, celebrating the legendary locations where Angelinos have dined for generations. Uh, George isn't just a fan of and historian of these great places, but is an award-winning chef as well, former pastry chef for the Walt Disney Company, certified culinary professional and recently chosen culinary educator 
of the year. George, great to have you back with us for the new book. Great being back. I appreciate it. So um, there's so many great places here and so many that I remember from childhood that I even went to just days ago, the Dalray. <laughs> yeah. I was just there uh, celebrating my birthday. Um, there are just so many great restaurants that are included here. Uh, how did you narrow it down? Oh, it's not easy. Well, you, you remember I did the previous book a few years ago on uh, legendary restaurants. And after I did that book, I had everybody asking me why I didn't do this restaurant, right? Why I didn't yeah. do that restaurant. Why I didn't uh, do Cantor's. Well, if I did Cantor's, I have to do Greenblatt's. I have and to Nate do, Nails. And you keep, and Nate Nails, you have to keep going with the Jewish delis. Yeah. So I added a, a handful in this book. And even yesterday, I got a email from somebody saying, you forgot the Brown Derby. Well, that was in the last book. <laughs> and they were, oh, I'm so sorry. So I, I'm getting that now that people think that I should always include their favorite. Their favorite, I might not have eaten at it could be gone like uh the first one starts out with little joe's. Yeah, little joe's i never went there yeah never went there but it was fascinating researching that and i found the family and the family i said did you know little joe's the founder was put in jail for about a year and they didn't know it they, they didn't brought know up that? the records it was uh for having alcohol in his basement oh you know? wow there was a little prohibition well problem. and you even have you even have artwork here from little joe's and it's one of these very popular sorts of drawings that you would see late 50s uh little joe's here's the key to little joe's cellar and it has little man with his uh with his uh waiter's outfit with a huge key and this big cellar mm. door so it's right. funny that yeah. that was the place uh during prohibition where he served uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of stories. Uh, I, I do I a lot of talks one. for uh, organizations, and there I can uh, kind of expand on some of the stories that I should not have written about, so I didn't write about those family really? things. Really? Yeah. yeah. But uh, the Del Rey you mentioned, uh, that, yeah. that's a hidden gem. Oh, that is not so just, hidden. It was no. packed. I was there oh, yeah. Saturday night for an early dinner with my family, and they the whole bar was set up for dining. Yes. The banquet room was being used for dining. The place was just just packed. Yeah. And their original location was over in Inglewood area. I and didn't they, know that. Yeah. So you'll wow. have to read that chapter. All right. They had three original locations at one, uh, three locations at one point, even in Orange County. So the restaurants that are included, and to me, the, my my favorite part of all this are the vintage photos. We'll ask how you got those, but... Stole but, them. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Coles, which of course is involved with Philippe's with the big debate over who first had the French dip sandwich. Right. I didn't put those two in my first book. And uh, Philippe's is one of my very, very favorite. I love Philippe's. Uh, and you want to know the answer? Who had the first? Yeah. What, Everyone asked that question. Yeah. Well, you see who's on the cover, right? <laughs> Philippe's, yeah. 866 893 5722. I want to hear from you, your favorite, whether it's a long gone LA legendary restaurant or one still in operation. You have the old Victor Hugo on South Hill. Now, I went um, to the one that was in Laguna Beach, but oh, never to the yeah. one downtown. Yeah, Laguna Beach was about the last one. Prior to that was the one in uh, uh, Beverly Hills. And that was a, a historical looking uh, place. But uh, I. They're all beautiful restaurants, oh, yeah, every yeah, location. I think they spent all their money on their, their decor and the 
fine. If they had the Michelin Guide back then, it would have gotten the three uh, stars, I think, uh, in uh, Los Angeles. But uh, like uh, Dinah's Family Restaurant. You oh, know, yeah. Every, uh, people, I found history that there were about 12 of, of them here, and they all served Kentucky Fried Chicken. They did well. They all served chicken, not Kentucky. It fried, was Kentucky but... Fried Chicken. Really? Yeah. Back when uh, Colonel Sanders was coming through towns, he would um, uh, have you. He would teach you how to make his chicken before he had chicken restaurants. Oh wow! And uh, he'd get like six cents per chicken you'd sell, and Dinah's was one of them. And because now their recipe is very different than Kentucky Fried Chicken. Yeah, yeah. But if you look, at, and they also use the original Pancake House pancake recipes. How funny. I got into the the stories, and they didn't even know that the people that own it now. That's uh, George. Yeah. This is absolutely amazing. And of course, there's still the Dinah's in Glendale, which is a chicken restaurant. Right, and that was a chain of the other one the right. uh, part of the 12 yeah i have that listed one of the ads because people would debate me on that i thought oh here's the ad with all their addresses <laughs> and they paid for it they even had one in hollywood on western back in the day wow yeah uh let's hear from listeners i want to hear your favorite legendary la restaurants either still around place like musso and frank or dal ray for example or the places that are long gone like pacific dining car which closed uh about three years ago now 866-893-5722 866-893-5722 gina in south pasadena says I miss Yamashiro in Hollywood. The ambiance just perfect up the hill overlooking. I thought Yamashiro is still open. I think it is. I thought I, I, so. They've changed some uh, The ownership, ownership changed. But I thought Yamashiro, as of a few months ago, I'm pretty sure yeah. it was open. And everyone says the best thing about Yamashiro is the view. The view. It is. Absolutely. Great. Great view. Sabrina tweets at AirTalk, uh, Hamburger Hamlet uh, had a yummy apricot sauce for their chicken wings. Uh, Diane in Santa Ana tweets, I had my wedding reception at Dalray Fullerton. So Correct, just yeah. Um, the Fullerton one. Yeah. Yeah. Sharing that. Um, Eric and Pomona tweets, Musso and Frank, I hope the fettuccine Alfredo recipe is in the book. Uh, is now, Musso in this one or the previous the, the one? The previous one. Thought, but yeah. if you buy the Musso and Frank cookbook, the fettuccine's in that too. All right. Yamashiro is still open. Yes. So you can go back to Yamashiro and uh, and enjoy that. Uh, let's see. Michael uh, uh, emailed uh, back in the day. Friends of mine and I would frequent the amazing Kelbo's Tiki Lounge on Fairfax, not the one on Pico. It was an incredible wonderland of tropical decor. But even then, Tiki was in decline and the place was almost deserted. Sadly, it's now gone, but I still miss it. That's Michael. When you email Please include your location along with your first name. Uh, please, Scott in Mid-City, L.A. says, I have an old ad for Little Joe's. It's shaped like a pig. My wife uh, found it uh, at a Goodwill in East Los Angeles, and we had it for 20 years. 866-893-5722. 866-893-5722. Rick, in Newport Beach, what restaurant do you uh, either love that's still open or the closed it's a restaurant called lowry's california center yeah and it was near dodger stadium and i was probably in my teens i'm about uh 67 now and um 
it was a place that our family would go and they'd have steak and mariachis were there and uh, it's just a nice place to go. They had these cheese blintzes that I remember and they were really good and just a nice place to go. The out of town family was there and yeah. we'd go before Dodge going to Dodger Stadium. Yeah, absolutely. I uh, it was called Lowry's California Center, just like you said, and uh, I I think it's an educational center now, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, there's something to do with uh, the Parks and Rec, and uh, they do weddings there. the The location it, it, I mentioned it in my previous book, uh, California Center, and it also was where Lowry's did all of the uh, packing of their spices back in the day, and you could take the spice tour. They had a wine shop there they had a mexican restaurant like he mentioned the mariachi band yeah they had a spe- steaks there it, there it was like four restaurants in one with a green be- area it's really in the pretty that's what yeah. I, I don't remember the food yeah. there i only ate there a couple times yeah. but i remember how beautiful the gardens yeah. were it, it was a garden place it was a, 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 a tour buses would stop there yeah on tours it was a great little place really pretty and of course lowry's is still with us scott in woodland hill said i used to go to bernard's at the biltmore hotel the service was wonderful food wonderful as well that was a real special occasion place bernard's i remember that uh 866-893-5722 our senior producer mad mentioning pie and burger in pasadena still cash only proudly (laughs) absolutely yes uh a terrific pie and burger on both counts uh, Robert and Whittier, my favorite restaurant growing up was La Luz del Dia. As you approach, you could hear them make tortillas by hand. Everything about it was good. Now they do it by machine, but it still brings back a lot of memories. Robert, thank you so much. Catherine in La- Laguna Beach, the Dresden Room in Los Feliz. My family and I used to drive there from Laguna Beach. The waiters were all older. I have really special memories of her. I'm wondering if Chef Gary is familiar with it. Well, that's an institution it is and and that's one of the difficult parts of writing the dresden room i wanted to include them in the book but they didn't want me to oh so they said they didn't have time all i do is ask uh for clarification when i write the story because press releases change with the press companies that they use i had one company say they had uh, it was when i did my chain restaurant book said that they had over 350 units or or restaurants when i all i could find was about 60 and they were lying the whole time so what i wanted was just clarification yeah i was going to write the story they uh and i need some pictures i need old menus i need the paraphernalia i collect a little bit of it and then i use a lot of people that i know like uh chris nichols from the la oh, magazine yes. he has a large collection that he lets me sort through and uh but the dresden room we had gotten out of covid and they just said we don't have time for it my my timing was maybe for a future book jimmy in downtown la says of course the smokehouse right across from warner brothers in the fourth grade they took a bunch of us kids there during a field trip (laughs) george clooney has named his production company after the restaurant that's absolutely right the smokehouse one of my favorites i love having dinner in the bar area the smokehouse they are one of the reasons why i did the second edition because i had forgotten the smokehouse and that was the number one location people 
kept saying, you don't have the smokehouse. You, and I found out information that their publicist didn't know, that uh, the person that did invent that cheese bread went off to start working at Marineland, if you remember oh, Marineland. And then he was one of the first executive chefs at Disneyland. Wow. And he won a lot of awards. And That's they said that couldn't be true. Then when I give people the facts because facts are facts, then they are a little surprised. But I was lucky enough to be invited to their 75th anniversary party That's this last right. year, which That's was really great. nice. The Smokehouse, an institution, of course, 866-893-KPCC. Anthony in Redondo Beach, a landmark restaurant you want to bring up. Yes, I'd like to bring up to Jerry Samus Deli. Uh, they used to be all over the valley. Yeah. I grew up in the West Sacramento Valley in West Hills. And then another place that we uh, would go to was the Swedish Inn on Ventura Boulevard. Um, we moved here from Chicago in 1978. It was one of the best uh, restaurants we went to. It was like we would frequent all my childhood memories. You know, whenever, you know, every painting, my mom would take us out. We'd either go to the Swedish Inn or we'd go to Jerry's. And it was just, their food is classic in both locations. Um, I used to love their Reuben on rye at Jerry's. Um, and their chef salad is, was amazing. I just loved it. I was planning on going there during the pandemic, and then I found out when I actually went there, and I, I discovered they had closed that day. I didn't oh, even wow. know it. I mean, I didn't find out until the you know until later on the news when I came back home. And I was scrambling to find another place, another like um, deli to go to, and um, I'm not sure about this, but it's like I I think most delis are like. Um, have Jewish roots or origins. I can, I can never find a deli that's not Jewish owned, and they're so delicious. I haven't, I haven't. Well, had Anthony, a that is Jewish food. That is what a deli is committed to yeah. uh, to providing, and we have some great ones you've included. You got arts in here. We're speaking of the valley. Yes, I do. I have arts. I thought because he was from Redondo Beach, he was going to say Tony's on the pier. Oh, which is, which is little, in the book. Yeah, it's a little tiki-ish. Yeah, and it's a fun place. Yeah, Anthony, thank you so much for that. The thing I remember about Jerry's, Jerry's, it probably had the longest uh, menu of any restaurant in the in the world. I mean, it just went on pages, pages. It seems like there's nothing they didn't make in the Jerry's kitchen. We'll continue with your favorite landmark restaurants of Greater Los Angeles. Chef George Geary is with us. His book, LA's Landmark Restaurants, celebrating the legendary locations where Angelinos have dined for generations and the list is long you've got pans of course which continues with its great architecture and its diner food casa vega in the san fernando valley the long gone villa capri which was a celebrity hangout in hollywood trump's i loved trump's in west hollywood which brought very cutting edge cooking at that time in the 1980s we'll be back and hear your favorite landmark restaurant in just 90 seconds. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Good to have you with us. 
as we talk about landmark restaurants of greater Los Angeles. Joining us is uh, George Geary, author of L.A.'s Landmark Restaurants, celebrating the legendary locations where Angelinos have dined for generations. Here you will find uh, Pacific Dining Car, uh, Joe Joss, uh, the original Pantry Cafe, Barney's Beanery, the Nicodel, right next door to Paramount Studios, Cantor's Delicatessen, George Petrelli's Steakhouse in Culver City, Thelma Todd's Sidewalk Cafe, the beautiful uh, building still there, the restaurant long gone, 866-893-5722. Ezra in Glendale, what restaurants do you want to shout out? Yes. Hey, Larry and George. Um, I love going to Hop Louie in Chinatown. I don't know if people are familiar with that restaurant, but I sure do miss it. My birthday's January 1st, and a lot of things were closed 20 years ago on my birthday, except for Chinatown and the restaurants. And I would always celebrate my birthday with my friends in their big, grand ballroom. It was so opulent and beautiful, and the food was so tasty. I absolutely miss it. You also wanted to mention another place in Glendale, another home of a huge menu. (laughs) That's for sure. A beautiful, picturesque menu. That's Foxy's here in Glendale. I love the A-frame, chalet style, the toasters at the table, and the fireplace. It's warm, family-friendly, but still gives me a little bit of those East Coast diner vibes. Yeah, and if you can't find something you like on their menu, there's something wrong with you. Ezra, thank you so much. Uh, Rachel in Los Feliz, uh, you're going to talk about a restaurant no longer there, I understand. Well, there are so many restaurants that I miss, but the one that really came to mind was Sarno's in Los Feliz, just down the street from the Dresden Room. And it was the first place my parents went on a date. It was their special event restaurant. They loved the opera singing waiters. And as a child, I was just amazed by all the shapes of pasta that they would hold in their wood and glass cases, like an old-fashioned candy store. It was just a wonderful place. Oh, that's great. Sarno's in Los Feliz. Rachel, thank you. Uh, Sylvia in Rosemead, what do you miss? Hi, I'm calling because there used to be a great restaurant. It was a seafood broiler. There was one in Lakewood. That was the original one. And then it was on the city of industry. And they made the best grilled oysters, I remember. And they had the best um, strawberry daiquiris. Oh, that's oh, that's great. Uh, the uh, seafood broiler. They used to advertise on the radio all the time, I remember, too. Sylvia, thank you very much. Stephanie, uh, joining us in San Pedro. Uh, Stephanie, uh, your favorite. Hello, Larry. Yes, our family favorite in the 50s and 60s was the Windsor Restaurant, 7th and Catalina, near iMagnon and Bullock's Wilshire. And I'm in San Pedro, and that was our parents' Absolutely elegant go-to spot before going to the Philharmonic, the Civic Light Opera. I met Ben, ben Dinsdale's little girl. Dad used to have drinks with Bob Hope at that horseshoe bar. Wow. There was Kelly, the cigarette girl. My mother adored the trap manier. I'm getting goosebumps. It's like a cast of a, of a TV series, <laughs> Kelly, the cigarette girl. I love that. The Windsor, I'm not familiar with. Have you heard of it, George? I think I saw the signage. Okay. when I lived close by there. Yeah. Because I used to, it's, it was close to Lafayette Park. Kind of, but yeah, it was behind. Well, it was off yeah. of Wilshire, Seventh and Catalina on a corner. There was this uh-huh. elegant apartment building, and then there was the Secret Harbor, Dale Secret Harbor, across from it. 
I remember Dale. All right, Stephanie, thank you so much. David in Pasadena, Stephen Steakhouse in Commerce near the intersection of Eastern and Olympic, Lillian in Northridge. I love the Tamashanter. Well, who doesn't, of course, uh, with its terrific uh, decor and uh, Lowry's Prime Rib and much more, historic restaurant. Uh, Lamont in Montebello also shouting out Hop Louie in Chinatown. Ben in Glacelle Park, Tacos Fiesta, been around since the 70s in Highland Park used to be a Denny's still a hole in the wall taco stand used to be cash only you can get a full meal under $10 at Taco Fiesta Ben thank you um uh, let's see, uh, Lila in Pasadena, why isn't Dukes in Santa Monica included in the book? Well, I, that'll have to be for the next <laughs> the volume, next I one? guess. <laughs> All right. Uh, do you have a, are you planning another one, George? Not that I know of. <laughs> I'm working on, uh, part two of Made in California, which was the one that came out last year on, uh, I realized there were over a hundred restaurants that went nationwide like mcdonald's that started in california and i want to know the very first place those were at like the very first in and out the very first uh schnitzel out in wilmington so that's where that next book is and that'll be out in about 18 months i just finished it up this month that's great we look forward to it thank you so much george for talking about it i love these conversations we love and we'll have you back la's landmark restaurants george geary the author of the book. It's Air Talk on KPCC. Coming up, uh, jazz singing great Kurt Elling talking about Monterey Jazz Festival on tour. Monterey Jazz Festival is on tour, fronted by Kurt Elling and Dee Dee Bridgewater, with musical director Christian Sands on piano. The band coming to Walt Disney Concert Hall this Friday, January 20th, part of a 12-state tour celebrating 65 years of the Monterey Jazz Festival. The festival itself is this fall, Monterey County Fairgrounds, but you don't have to wait till then to get a big taste of the Monterey Jazz Festival. Uh, joining us to talk about it, uh, co-headliner, um, the uh, Grammy Award-winning singer, multi-nominee, Kurt Elling. Kurt, great to have you with us today on Air Talk. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Share with us uh, what Monterey means to jazz artists, the importance of this festival, you know, versus um, many others with storied histories. Well, Monterey has a... a a very specific kind of uh, temperament to itself. Uh, It's very laid back. It's very user-friendly. Anybody who's been there knows how easy it is to get from venue to venue just on foot and to enjoy yourself and see each other on that main walk that goes through the fairgrounds. Uh, And that everything's, just about everything's outdoors, at least it was this this last couple of years because of COVID, the stuff, not putting things indoors. But even when it is, uh, everything is, you know, like I say, very user-friendly, and it has its own temperament, very laid-back and very embracing. And share with us on, on this show some of the things that uh, the audience is going to experience. Well, there's a lot of storytelling from uh, from several of us, uh, you know, telling uh, telling stories about our experiences at the festival and our experiences with other musicians who have gone before us, uh, those who we respect and who we follow in the tradition 
Um, and of course, there's a lot of great singing, and Dee Dee Bridgewater puts on a great show. Christian Sands, as you mentioned, is the MD, and he plays beautifully. We also have a, a kind of a new discovery, an up-and-coming uh, artist named Lakeisha Benjamin, who plays a very, very fierce alto saxophone with a very signature sound. I've heard her in New York. She's, she's great. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's, it's got to be exciting to see emerging artists. Um, you were one yourself at one, at one time, you know, starting out in something that has the straight history of jazz to see, uh, younger artists coming up. What's that like, you know, for you to see that kind of talent emerge? Oh, it's always, it's always fantastic when, when you, you know, when you come across the real thing. You know, uh, so many generations of music students at this point, so many generations of young people coming out, making an appearance, and then disappearing again. Uh, but Lakeisha's really got the real stuff, and she's got the fire, and she's got the dedication. And it's it's thrilling to hear uh, that much young energy uh, put into the music that we love so much. You have an interesting background. Um, as, as with me, you, you were in seminary for a while, and I thought I was going to pursue the ministry before devoting myself to radio. Uh, I know you were looking at, at potentially doing religious work and then committed yourself to singing, that that would be your career. What was the pivotal point for you that, enabled you to make that full commitment to the art uh well uh, it's it's you know ages ago now back in chicago and uh i was at the university of chicago divinity school so i was reading the philosophy of religion and thinking i was i would work you know perhaps with world council of churches or be a professor or that sort of a thing um but uh you know you you can't really read high uh schleiermacher and habermas and Paul Ricoeur and such like, and, you know, expect to stay awake if you're out in the jazz club every night uh, <laughs> trying to become a jazz singer. And you can't really, you can't really, as, as the Bible says, you can't serve two masters. So, uh, you know, I remember one, one night in particular, my great mentor and friend, the late Von Freeman, you know, kept, kept his arms around me and, and said, you know, kept encouraging me to sing more and sing more and sing more and sing another and, go another chorus and the next day i think the professor called me into his office and he said yeah mr elling i have read your paper several times and i don't think you know what you're talking about <laughs> so that might have been the pivotal moment that may have convinced you were talking with the great jazz artist kurt elling talking about um what was the foundation to his career you came up in chicago an incredible jazz city the the green mill one of my favorite jazz clubs anywhere and just you'll briefly speak to the influence that that city's music had on you well, Chicago, of course, has a very intense jazz tradition and a very intense uh, and lively blues tradition. Uh, it's a it's a city of what they what they used to call the tough tenors, uh, very burly, uh, gregarious, big big tenor sounds from the center saxophone. Um, you know, an outsized personality uh, of sound and a deep commitment to swinging. And those are all things that I subscribe to. And I try to be in the, in the tradition of. 
One of the things in jazz is we see over time artists uh, become even stronger interpreters of lyrics. You yourself work in vocalies as well, where lyrics are added to what have been instrumental songs and often allows for improvisation uh, in, in your musical performances. As you look at yourself as an artist now, has traveled the world, has all the honors and, and the career that you have versus as a young man starting out in this, what ha- what do you feel like you've learned? What are the ways in which you feel your interpretations today are are even richer than they were? Oh well, you're taking for granted that they're richer than they were. Uh, you know, is that not uh, the case? I have no idea. I just try to learn uh, every day a little something. You know, one's progress in in music and art is incremental as it is in life, and you learn. Sometimes by mistakes, you learn by risking, you learn by uh, being defeated and getting back up again. Um, I certainly know a lot more about audience relations from the stage and the kinds of experience that I prefer for people to have when they come out. Uh, But I continue to learn, you know, every night now from Dee Dee Bridgewater, my dear and beloved friend, and, and enjoy seeing her, you know, wield her magic on an audience uh, and I enjoy uh, listening to the stories that Christian Sands, the young young uh, musical director of the show, has to offer. There's just always more. Um, we uh, we as human beings, you know, have such a limited amount of time, and you can only learn as fast as you learn. So here I am, 30 years into the uh, into the music, and I hope that I'm singing better, and I hope that I'm interpreting in a in a more deep fashion and transparent fashion. But only time will tell. Kurt Elling, thank you so much for joining us to talk about the Monterey Jazz Festival on tour. Um, multiple dates here in Southern California. Big performance coming up at Walt Disney Concert Hall, downtown Los Angeles, this Friday. Uh, and tonight, he's going to be in Palm Desert uh, with Dee Dee Bridgewater and the others at the McCallum Theater for the Performing Arts. Uh, then coming up on January 25th, the Sagerstrom Center for the Arts in Orange County. In Costa Mesa, performances also after that in San Diego and in Santa Barbara at UCSB as well. Talking with Kurt Elling, and we're going to leave you uh, with uh, Kurt's uh, Super Blue from the 2021 album of the same name. Just Kurt, before we play it, just a, a quick note about this recent recording. Uh, Super Blue is a collaboration uh, between the great. Uh, guitar virtuoso Charlie Hunter and friends of ours from a great band of young stallions called Butcher Brown and myself. Uh, and we made it during COVID because we couldn't be in the same room together. And uh, it's uh, it's a new uh, discovery and a new adventure for me because it's got a lot more electronic stuff and a lot more boogaloo in it than it has than, than my usual swinging records have. That's fun. Is that something that you anticipate uh, bringing to live performances as well? Oh, for sure. We toured last year with it, and we've got Super Blue 2 coming out this year, and we're going to just hit it as hard as we can. All right. Kurt Elling, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Thank you. The important thing is to pull yourself up by your own head. To turn yourself inside out and see the whole world with fresh eyes.
It's Hair Talk on KPCC. When Super Blue brings home the new and fateful brew. Oh. It's Hair Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Wonderful to have you with us. Hope your day's going well. Just a reminder, film week's tomorrow. At 10 o'clock, we'll hear what our critics, Leah Lowenstein, Andy Klein, and Charles Solomon have to say about the comedic drama When You Finish Saving the World. It stars Julianne Moore and Finn Wolfhard, uh, Jesse Eisenberg uh, as the writer-director. We'll also hear about the Icelandic drama Beautiful Beings. It's Iceland's official Oscar entry in the Best International Feature Film category. Uh, also, a French movie. Movie, the Super Eight Years, which is uh, a biographical documentary. Uh, the director and her family uh, are followed, and uh, it feeds into the themes of the director's work over the past 60 years. So many films we talked about on Film Week. That's coming up tomorrow at 10 o'clock right here on KPCC. Well, it's been six months since the 988 mental health helpline was rolled out. We're going to take a look at how it's been working to this point, it appears at least that it's doing much better than the 10-digit number that preceded us. With us is Associated Press reporter covering healthcare policy, Amanda Seitz. Amanda, thank you so much for being with us today. Hi, Larry. Thanks for having me. So let's just start, first of all, how does the program appear to be in the first six months of its rollout? Yeah, so certainly what we found is it's it's a bit bittersweet. The line has been very successful in that more people are calling. It's received nearly 2 million calls in the first six months alone. Um, but obviously that means that uh, if, if so many people are calling, that means that a lot of people are struggling. Yeah, but but at least they're reaching out and using this number more than the previous. Aside from making it easier with the three-digit 988, are there other changes that have taken place with the introduction of that number? Yeah, the line has really drastically changed just in the, the short time since it's launched. Um, it got a billion dollars in federal funding. Um, and with that, they've propped up more call centers. Um, they've actually propped up more in Spanish, dedicated to taking Spanish-speaking callers, too. Um, they've added an LGBTQ youth line that people can even text or chat with during certain hours. And they have plans to continue that growth. For example, they hope to expand um, Spanish-speaking text messaging and chat later this year. One of the big concerns, of course, are over rising numbers of suicides of veterans. Is there a specific uh, veterans line that people can get to through this because um, of the issues veterans may be raising that are quite specific uh, to their service? Yes, absolutely. So that has that has been around, um, as you said, under the old 10 digit line, um, and that has it continued with a three-digit line. People can press two to reach that line. And it has also seen more calls, more texts, more chat since the 988 line launched. And do we have a sense of how the Spanish language line is doing? Has has that um, been used much since its introduction? Yeah, we, we've really seen growth across 
all of the lines, um, which is pretty incredible in, again, the short time since it's launched. All right. We're talking with Associated Press reporter Amanda Seitz about her reporting on the 988 mental health hotline. Uh, And uh, if you have questions about it or if you yourself have used it and would be comfortable talking about it, I'd love to hear what what you appreciated or maybe you found um, unhelpful or cumbersome. If you're comfortable talking about your experience, having called the line for assistance, I'd love to hear that. We're at 8 866-893-5722. That's 866-893-5722. Uh, and again, if you have any questions about the operation of the line, we'd be interested in hearing from you as well. Also joining us from Dee Hirsch, Mental Health Services, Vice President of Crisis Care of the LA-based organization, Sherry Sinwelski. Sherry, thank you very much for being with us. What's your sense of of how the new three-digit line is working. Yeah, thank you for having me. We've seen a a big increase um, in contacts to the service, about a 26% increase overall. People can reach us by calling the three-digit number. You can also text the number or visit um, the website to chat and to speak to a counselor. And so overall, we've seen a 26% increase in, in people who are wanting to speak with a counselor when they're in distress. And uh, what is the preferred method that people use? Is is it um, actual voice phone call? Or are you finding text and chat are are uh, growing in the comfort level for people to use that? Yeah, we're still seeing more calls than anything else. However, text and chat continue to to really increase exponentially, especially among youth. And about how long are people on the calls with with someone specially trained to talk with them? You know, every call varies depending on the intensity of of how a person is feeling and what they might be needing. Um, On average, if you average all of our calls out together, our calls are usually maybe 13 to 15 minutes each. But again, that's just definitely an average. Many callers stay on the line much longer than that. And some people might just be calling to ask a question and it could be much shorter. And what are some of the uh, the the information that are offered by the people that are staffing the lines? Uh, for example, you know, how do they assess the risk of of the person to do uh, self harm or um, ways of of trying to keep the person safe? How, how you know what what are some of the different ways they handle the calls? Yeah, every counselor that answers our calls and checks and chats have been through an intensive training. And I think one of the things that they're really trained in doing is is really just listening. You know, being able to talk to somebody about suicide that can be scary if, if you've not been through some training on that. And and you know, really being able to listen with a non-judgmental ear and and be able to hear a person's pain. And that's one of the things that's really um, amazing and great about the counselors on our line is that they are there to hear a person say, you know, I'm, I'm at my worst right now and I need somebody to, to listen to that. Um, that's the first thing that they do. But another thing that they do is they're going to ask the person some questions. They're going to clarify, are you thinking about suicide right now? Are you thinking about killing yourself? And then they want to better understand, you know, how far down that path has a person gotten? Have they made a plan? 
Um, and if so, what are some things that they can work on together to help that person feel better so that they can stay safe? We're talking with uh, Dee Dee Hirsch, uh, the mental health agency here in Los Angeles, uh, Sherry Sinwelski joining us. Again, if you have questions about how this line is operating six months in, this is the, the 988 line, the suicide and crisis lifeline. We're at 866 893 5722 You can also email us at atcomments at kpcc.org. Please include your location and your first name. And again, if you have used the 988 line or its predecessor, the 10-digit number, and you're comfortable talking about what that experience was like, whether it was helpful for you, um, and your thoughts about the whole process of how this works, please share that if you're comfortable. 866-893-5722. Approximately how many people have you trained to be on the phones and respond to people? Yeah, so in, in the state of California, D.D. Hirsch Mental Health Services is one of 13 centers that is taking calls for 988. Um, we're the largest center in California. We've we've trained, we've got over 500 staff and volunteers that are now answering calls and texts and chat. And that's just at D.D. Hirsch. Um, across the state, there's far more than that that are answering calls. And we're part of a network of over 200 centers across the country who are there making 988 a success. You know, sometimes when people are in a mental health crisis, they're they're a bit stuck. And um, what are some of the ways that uh, those staffing the phones uh, try and uh, try and uh, if they do help move people the call sort of out of a of a stuck place in their thinking, particularly if it's self-destructive? Yeah, that's a, a really good question. You know. I think things are getting better in society, but for for a long time, you know, people didn't really want to hear about other people's problems. You know, when somebody would say, how are you doing today? Our answer is usually, oh, I'm fine, even when you're not. And I, I think that when a person calls or texts or chats 988, you know, we're ready to hear why a person isn't doing okay. We want to hear why they're not doing okay. Um, and depending on what's going on with them, you know, they might suggest things that could help them to feel better, seeing a counselor, self-help groups, techniques that, that might help them to feel better. But, you know, I think one of the things that's just really amazing about the work that we do is is allowing people to say, I'm not okay. It's okay that you're not okay. And really being able to vent that and get that off of a person's chest can kind of, you know, clear some, you said a person is stuck. And I think sometimes getting that off of their chest can help them to get unstuck. When people say, you know what, it's okay. Tell me what's going on. It's okay that, that everything isn't perfect right now. Sherry, how do you judge the success areas where there needs to be improvement or things that particularly seem to be working? How, how do you make an objective standard for judging that? Sure. There's a lot of metrics that we use on the line to try to determine our success. You know, one, of course, is making sure that there's people available 24-7 to answer all of the contacts that are coming in and that they're able to be answered quickly and effectively. But we also look at what's being done on the line. SAMHSA, our Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, is a federal organization that has provided funding to the lifeline. Um, Funding is now flowing from SAMHSA to the state 
state of California as well. And they've done some really amazing um, studies when the line was still 1-800-273-TALK, actually following up with callers and people who've used the line um, to see, you know, was this service effective? Was it helpful for you? And and there are many, many reports of people who say, who say that calling the lifeline, calling the 1-800 number saved their life. And I know that as we move towards the new service for 988, studies will continue to help us to better understand um, how are we doing on the line and how can we continue to make the service an equitable service that everybody is comfortable calling and using when they're in emotional distress. I would assume the Spanish language line is particularly helpful here in Southern California. What To what extent have you seen that used locally? Yeah, we we do see that number used locally, but actually all across the nation. Dee Dee Hirsch serves as, you know, because we're in Southern California, we're able to recruit volunteers and staff members to answer that line. And so we have seen people calling in on that number from from all across the country, including in Southern California. I did want to note that the when you call in to 988, the press one option is the number that you dial um, if you're wanting to reach the veterans crisis line. Press two is actually for the sp- Spanish line. So I think that okay. might have been switched earlier. Okay. That's appreciate that clarification. And, and Sherry, what, uh, this can be very um, difficult work. I'm sure for the people around the line, particularly when a call doesn't go as, as one would hope it would go. And um, the person hangs up perhaps when they're still in crisis and, and there doesn't uh, necessarily appear to be a next positive step that's underway. Um, how, how do you work with the people that are on the lines with the undoubted disappointment or perhaps even trauma in some cases when a call to 988 does not go well? Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things that we do first and foremost is, you know, we train everybody who's coming in to work on the lines to to recognize that when a person calls in, that call is part of a larger process, hopefully, maybe the starting point of them getting the help that they need and, and that it does take time for people sometimes to take those steps. We offer follow-up calls to our callers. And so even if that initial call doesn't produce, you know, um, an entire change in a person's situation, it, it might be the launching step. We call them back to see how they're doing. So we are able to see a broader picture of, of how they're feeling and how they're doing. But self-care is really important. Larry, and I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned that because, you know, people who are taking these calls, they do hear a lot of a lot of pain and it's important for them to put a plan in place that that they're able to take care of themselves. And we try to give them opportunities to do that both within the organization and on their free time. Do, do you is there any screening for the people who do the work in advance just just to to make sure that doing the work wouldn't be triggering itself for for those doing it? Yeah, we do have a screening process um, that we have that everybody goes through and as well as the training too. Some people might decide that, you know, it's, it's something that's not best for them at, at whatever point they are in their life. Um, but, but, you know, that is something that we work together jointly with them so that, that they're able to take care of themselves. We're talking about the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Joining us from D.D. Hirsch, Mental Health Services based in Los Angeles, Vice President of Crisis Care, Sherry Sinwelski, joining us on Air Talk. John in Granada Hill says when someone calls 988, they can be referred for an immediate response. That's typically done through psychiatric mobile response teams. Recently, that hotline response is closed between midnight and 6 a.m. When someone needs help at those hours, who is called in place? Sherry? 
Yeah, you know, the, those services are outside of the scope of what Dee Dee Hirsch provides. Um, and those I know are are really being um, bolstered in our communities across the, the state of California and across the nation. Um, unfortunately, that is one of the areas that I think that the system needs to grow. You know, when people are thinking about the, the launch of 988, I've really heard it described as a three-pronged approach. The first being to get the crisis line um, up and ready so that there's always someone for them to talk to, someone to call. The second is someone to come if a person's in crisis. And the third is a place somewhere to go. And, and that's a vision over the next, you know, several years that the nation and the state is looking for to expand. Um, and it depends really on what community a person is in as to what services are available at given times. All right. John, we appreciate your, your question. Let me go back to Associated Press reporter covering healthcare policy, Amanda Seitz, who's, who's written about the 988 number and how it's going so far. You'd mentioned, Amanda, that there was additional funding coming. What are some of the ways that this service is, is looking to grow? Yeah, so I know one of the things that they're looking to add this year is that text and chat option uh, for the Spanish uh, language line. They also want to grow the text and chat option on the LGBTQ youth line as well. Um, and I think, as Sherry mentioned, too, one of the areas that we'll be watching is just how people can get help outside of the line that might prevent even an emergency situation that results in a call to the line. That's something that we heard um, a little bit of frustration about from when we when we toured the 988 call center is that people might call and they maybe just need to get set up with a counselor or a therapist to talk to regularly, but then there's a long wait time to try and see someone. Um, so I think that's another area where growth might happen as well in the coming years. Now, some states I know uh, have permanent funding they put in place for this, but uh, that's probably the minority of states. Uh, they're concerned that some states are not going to be committed to this long term? I don't think there's huge concern, but states do need to figure out how they're going to fund this long term. Um, it's supposed to operate just like 911 is, meaning that states will eventually be taking over the operations and the funding of the lines. And as you noted, some states have not, a lot of states have not figured that out yet. Um, the states that have have typically added a, a little surcharge onto cell phone bills uh, to pay for the line. Um, but not every state has done that. And certainly, some states need to figure that out in order to take over the, the line long term. Um, other states, though, have started to even expand the line. In Washington state, for example, they launched a Native American line. Um, and I know there's interest from other states to do something similar or maybe something that's focused on large populations or community in their state. Uh, thank you so much, Amanda. Really appreciate your being with us today and talking about your reporting on this. Thank you. Thank you, Larry. That's Amanda Seitz of AP, and our thanks to Sherry Sinwelski of D.D. Hirsch Mental Health Services as well. Uh, talking about the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline, now six months uh, in operation. Coming up, the incredible success of TikTok. It's uh, described as being very sticky. People spending a lot of time on it because of the algorithms that really tap in to the kinds of things that are going to get Get people watching. We'll talk about how TikTok is so successful despite all the calls um, for governmental agencies not to have it used on any governmental phones. We'll come back and get into that in just a minute.
week tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock. Our critics Andy Klein, Charles Solomon, and Leo Lowenstein have a bunch of new movies to talk about. You don't want to miss it. Be here at 10 for Film Week tomorrow on KPCC. We turn our attention now to the incredible popularity of TikTok. Last week, we were talking about how uh, various governments have been banning the app because of concerns about all the information harvested from the app that could end up in the possession of the Chinese government because of the Chinese ownership of uh, TikTok's parent company. But the algorithm that TikTok has mastered is truly remarkable in the kind of effect that it's had, particularly on younger Americans, but not exclusively younger Americans. With us to talk about what makes TikTok such a hit is Karen North, USC Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism, Professor of Digital Social Media. Karen, it's so good to have you back with us today on Air Talk. Always a pleasure to be with you. So share with us how TikTok has risen uh, and and seemingly outcompeted uh, Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. What What is it about TikTok that has been such a breakthrough? I mean, well, we could spend the entire day talking about that. But to, you know, sort of sum it up, TikTok is incredibly compelling. But in I mean, to make this sort of the scary argument, it's incredibly compelling in large part because it collects so much data on each and every one of us using it that it can target us better than any platform or app has ever done that before. So TikTok will, you know, figure out and it, you know, in a lot of platforms, it'll be whatever you, whatever you say you like, you'll sort of create a profile and you'll like things and comment on things. But TikTok is really masterful at watching your more subtle actions, what you pause on, what you what you look at, what you what, how much of like an entire video you watch, and it has a robust algorithm that then targets you uh, for the content that it thinks will be stickiest for you. Uh, Los Angeles Times art and design columnist Carolina Miranda uh, wrote a, a lengthy piece about TikTok and, and described it as having an an addictive anti-aesthetic. Um, Karen, can you talk a little bit about that? What uh, What is the anti-aesthetic, so to speak, of TikTok? You asked me that? Yes. The, here's the interesting thing about it is that, you know, there are a number of apps and, uh, and platforms that have shown up really as a reaction against other, um, uh, you know, other, uh, uh, you know, activities that we have. The big one being Instagram. For those of us who've been on Instagram from the beginning, it became almost a competition for who's the best artist with photographs. And people felt very judged. Like they're, you know, what they posted, what they filtered and posted wasn't pretty enough, but wasn't artistic enough. And then things like Snapchat popped up because Snapchat was, you know, ephemeral. It's like disappearing ink. And it was sort of sharing what's happening in the moment without any judgment. And the same thing with things like Be Real. Now it's like a little shout out, no judgment. So the, the, the you know, real winner on that is TikTok, which said, you know, the aesthetic has to be kind of a natural, authentic, anybody can do it aesthetic, meaning you're not going to be judged for quality. And one of the most brilliant things they did is instead of people claiming that's my intellectual property, I created that. It's a challenge to everybody to join in and participate, almost like karaoke, right? So they have these, like, duets where 
some famous singer puts up something amazing and then Larry, you and I can jump in and sing alongside them and post it together. And ours is ridiculous, but it's fun and compelling to watch. <laughs> so the anti-aesthetic draws us in just like hanging out with your friends at karaoke. Yeah, I don't like looking at video in the vertical orientation because we have eyes, you know, that are side by side, not one on top of the other. So I just find it more aesthetically pleasing uh, to turn my phone and and look at it uh, uh, in the horizontal mode. But TikTok, of course, is it's all about in the vertical mode. I assume that was because of the dance, the full body view that really it was designed for people to d- do dance performances. But is there something else going on with that vertical orientation? I mean, each of the platforms that is mobile, you know, d- developed or adapted to mobile, um, has its own way of um, of showing things. And TikTok has been very solid at trying to use the entire screen. So when you do a TikTok video, it fills the entire screen. And yes, but like the the dancing is really, you know, it, it came from, you know, Musical.ly, which was a music um, activity and promotion site. And so it is really, it really did start that way. But, you know, the way that they've done it is, um, you know, it also, if you think about it, especially how kids are using their phones for, notes and phone calls and text messages and so they don't have to change the orientation and the original efforts of tiktok were very very short videos and so the idea of changing the orientation just to watch a video um is you know cumbersome and so doing it you know keeping the video in the format where the kids are already texting each other or doing other activities was i think a um a real win for tiktok We're talking with USC professor of digital social media, Karen North. Also with us, the aforementioned art and design columnist for the Los Angeles Times, Carolina Miranda. Carolina, good to have you with us today. Um, Professor North was just uh, elaborating some of the points that you raised in your terrific column, looking at how TikTok has has conquered culture, as as you put it. Uh, How much is your sense of, of TikTok's breaking through, not just from younger users, but but to people that are older, is is TikTok? Um, you know, are we seeing its median age of user rise? That you know that I would not be able to tell you uh, exactly. I was my story looks more at the aesthetics than um, at the user base, but I do think that TikTok is at this point that it is a full blown cultural phenomenon that has had effects on other areas of culture. So yes, you have a lot of older users on there now. Uh, I did a story last year on how Gen X TikTok was responding to the invasion, the Russian invasion of Ukraine and this idea of a Cold War II and how the Gen X generation was was kind of positioned um, to deal with this. But I think you're also seeing TikTok's effects on areas outside of TikTok. And and I think that's where it's really significant. You know, Google redesigned the way it presents uh, results on its search engine based on the way that people, that young people search apps like TikTok, you know, say looking for uh, lunch. They redesign aspects of their maps function. Um, you see singers uh, embodying that vertical screen that you were just talking about. Rosalia had a series of vertical screens in her recent uh, Motomami tour on her stage when she was performing on tour. An aesthetic taken very much from TikTok. 
Fascinating. So, so you're seeing all kinds of, of interactions with TikTok. Talk a bit about the stickiness of it and how this algorithm works to keep people on the site. How does it essentially get inside the user's brain? Well, I think it does it through a num- it does it in a really interesting way. On on most social media platforms, what happens is you log on and then the the platform asks you to follow people if you want to follow your contacts and then maybe it asks you uh, like in the way that Facebook does a little questionnaire about yourself, you know, what's your favorite music, what's your favorite book, where did you graduate from, where do you live? And and that those algorithms be- begin to determine what might be of interest to you. TikTok dispenses with all of that. What you do is you log on to TikTok for the first time and you just start getting this fire hose of videos. And what happens is the algorithm begins to notice which ones do you like? Which ones do you watch all the way through? Which ones do you share? Um, is there, uh, do you tend to like comedic videos more than anything? Well, the algorithm begins to feed you more and more of that. So the, the app doesn't wait for you to click a bunch of boxes. It immediately just begins to take data from your viewing habits and also some your phone settings. So for example, your, la- your language, your chosen language, as well as, as your geography where, where you are located. And it begins you, to, to feed you content based on that. And, and it has proven incredibly sticky because it really is monitoring, not the way you say you would want to use the app, but yeah. the way you actually use it. Which we know is a big difference because uh, it's like how people respond to surveys. You know, they, they present exactly. themselves in the way they want to be perceived or even how they want to think of themselves versus how they actually behave. Frank in Cathedral City says, I'm a TikTok influencer with millions of views. I feel like TikTok is is changing and starting to promote conflict and live videos of um, uh, content content. Carolina, is this something you've seen? I have, I think certainly there are some dynamics that have changed on TikTok since it, since it was first established in 2016. When it was first established, the, the average video, the, the video length, the max video length was 15 seconds. Recently, and that has gone growing over the years, and recently that has uh, moved up to 10 minutes. So the site has taken on these like YouTube like qualities where, you know, it's very, it's hard to have like a 15 second rant, like in 15 seconds, maybe you can get in some movement. Maybe you can get in some music. Maybe you can get in a short statement and then you're out. I mean, you're a radio host, you know, that 15 seconds is nothing. Mm -hmm. Um, But 10 minutes, boy, that's something else entirely. And I I think that does create for um, a different sort of climate. And I think like all social media apps, you know, there's a lot of concerns about the ways in which TikTok feeds uh, propaganda, the ways in which these algorithms surface videos that uh, make us, you know, that heighten our emotions so that they make us angry. You know, they feed our rage. Um, you know, like every other social media platform, Facebook has certainly faced issues with this. It's it's embedded into into that algorithm, surfacing things that that make us mad. One of the other things you've written about is how you know that th- there's this whole subcategory on TikTok of people watching other people's performances and sometimes not even commenting. You just sit there you're just watching them watching someone else what what's the psychology of that 
You know, I think I, I wish I knew the exact psychology of it. I was really struck by it. I was following a video that had gone viral and I decided to just look at the way in which it had been duetted. And it really is amazing to watch how people use the duet function, not necessarily to comment on other people's work, but simply to observe. And to me, it strikes me as this more active form of looking. You know, you can go on Facebook and Instagram and just like a bunch of things. That doesn't mean that you're necessarily that engaged with it. You could be liking it just because it's your friend and you want to give them some props. I feel like doing the duet function on TikTok and just simply observing is this way of people saying, hey, I'm here. I'm looking at you. I see you. I'm not sitting in judgment. You know, I'm not making catty comments. I'm just I, I just want to let you know that we're here. And, and it is one of the more intriguing and more humane aspects of the app. Professor North, what are your thoughts about that? I mean, there are a couple of things. Just as a psychologist, you know, we have to remember that people as social animals look for role models and, um, you know, like modeling of behavior. And, um, you know, there's there's a sense of conformity that we all have. And so it's very interesting that, you know, TikTok has provided people an opportunity to watch others and to watch others watch and react. Um, there's a very popular YouTube channel called the React Channel, which is just people reacting to things, movies and activities and things like that. And it's the same phenomenon. Um, but, you know, uh, the other thing I just wanted to mention that when you're talking about targeting people, um, I just want to mention that there's a huge controversy that we don't hear much about that, um, you know, in places like Afghanistan, TikTok, when you talk about the algorithm finding people and attracting different users rather than just young, playful, you know, people who like dance, you know, there are refugees who are complaining that they're being targeted with scams on TikTok, asking them, you know, do you want to go to the United States, send us money? And they're very compelling, like, series of videos um, that go on TikTok that target these people who are desperate in their own country and trying to lure them into financial scams that promise them freedom. And so I, I've been contacted a number of times by people in that region asking about what to do about that, you know, and it's just a terrible yeah. predatory behavior. We're talking with USC professor of digital social media, Karen North. Noah emailed us. I'm 50. It's really amazing how interesting my TikTok feed has become. For me, it's science, philosophy, rock and roll history, refurbishing old objects and old Siskel and Ebert reviews. Most of the videos are several minutes long. I was looking over my niece's shoulder at her TikTok feed and it's all dancing. I told her there's no dancing on my feed. She said, all TikTok is dancing, is is dancing. Anyway, there's good content on there in addition to awful content. However, it's worth noting quite a bit of the good content isn't original. It's people reposting content that they like. Carolina, quick thought on that. Well, I think, you know, that's that's to some degree, it's part of what makes uh, the the bar for entry on TikTok is so uh, is rather low. And I think um, uh, Professor North was alluding to some of this before is that the app doesn't expect you to be perfect. It is kind of like a big karaoke game. And I think the reposting of content and maybe reacting to that content or putting a clever caption on that content or doing something or maybe changing the sound track on it is this way of engaging culture but not necessarily having to create something from the ground up that you can riff on something that exists without with without that 
sort of overwhelming sensation of, oh my God, I'm staring at a blank page. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, yeah. we've all been through that. So that's a really interesting facet of the app that it keeps it easy to participate. I want to thank you so much for being with us. That's Carolina Miranda, art and design columnist for the Los Angeles Times and Karen North, USC Annenberg School professor of digital social media. Coming up, it's our weekly look at the best of television. This week, our critics are Angie Hahn from The Hollywood Reporter and Liz Shannon Miller of Consequence. We'll hear what they have to say about the best of television when we come back in 90 seconds. On Air Talk, it's our Thursday TV Talk segment. Joining us from Consequence Senior Entertainment Editor Liz Shannon Miller and Angie Hahn of The Hollywood Reporter. Let's get right to the shows. That 90s show, um, which uh, picks up where the 70s show left off. Uh, Angie, please start us with it. What did you think? Uh, I think that it is really good at what it's going for. I mean, we've seen a lot of these reboots of, you know, 90s favorites recently. You've got like the Bel Air on Peacock, which is a dramatic version of Fresh Prince of Bel Air. You've got, you know, we had, well, I guess I was also on Peacock, which took a much more like wacky meta angle. Um, that 70s show isn't really doing that. It's not, not trying to subvert or comment on the original, really. It's not trying to reinvent the wheel. It's just trying to kind of cover the same sort of cozy, comfort, like laid back fun that the original had. And I think it does an excellent job of doing that. All right. uh, I mean, obviously, it, there's some updates. It's the 90s now. There's a new cast. The only um, two, there's a lot of cameos and stuff. But the only two core cast members who return as regulars are the grandparents. Um, but yeah, within that, it just it really just feels like a continuation of the old show. And I think it works really well for it. That 90s show, Liz. Yeah, I think the Angie really nailed it. I think the it, really interesting thing about it is tracking what kind of 90s references they decide to make within the context of the series. You get needle drops from Alanis Morissette and you also and Boys to Men and you also get. Uh, an, an entire episode that revolves around the movie Clerks, uh, which uh, Kevin Smith's first film, which is a choice. It's a fun one, uh, but there's a lot of unexpected elements to it. And it's, you know, uh, one of those shows where you can see it being a cross-generational favorite just because you've got people who grew up watching the original 70s show who grew up in the 80, 90s. And then you've got people who just love this format across, you know, any age. Uh, the That 90s show uh, is rated TV 14 and all 10 episodes released today. Uh, it's available. Uh, I don't have what service. Do you know what service that's on? That's Netflix. It's on Netflix. Netflix. Okay, great. That 90s show. Velma on HBO Max uh, starring Mindy Kaling. Uh, Charlie Grandy is the creator of it, an adult animated comedy series with the origin story of Velma of the Scooby-Doo gang. Angie. Uh, so we were just saying how that that 90s show is just kind of trying to replicate the charms of that 70s show and just be like a very smooth continuation. Velma is not that at all. It is a, a new version of Scooby-Doo that doesn't even have Scooby-Doo in it. Um, like no dog. It's just the human characters. And it's a prequel about, you know, the origin story of Velma, but also of how these four people uh, became friends and started solving mysteries together. And it's trying to be very like subversive and clever and self-aware. And it just does not really work 
very well at all. Like, I didn't think that it worked well as a show about these characters. I didn't think the jokes were that funny. They're somehow um, trying too hard to be quote unquote woke with their jokes, but also like have a weirdly conservative streak to them. Like, I just, I don't know. Like, it, it's, I, it kind of started, you know, on initially I was on board. I was like, okay, let's see what this new kind of wacky self aware version is about. But the more it went on, the more I did just, it just seemed so satisfied with its own cleverness and it, it seemed to really lose any sense of kind of heart that it could have had uh the first episode of velma is out on hbo max or actually four episodes are out and uh the next episode release is coming up thursday january 26th hunters in its second season on amazon prime starring logan lerman al pacino lena olin uh carol kane what a cast from creator david weil liz what do you think of the second season so the second season is really interesting because it's the second and final season. I think they just kind of realized that there was only so much plot. They really wanted to get out of the premise of a group of a group of 70s vigilantes hunting Nazis, which feels like a premise that could go on for a lot longer. But they decided to wrap it up this season. Uh, it's actually a really fun season uh, in fits and spurts. Like there's unfortunately they made the decision to keep Al Pacino's character around for season two, even though things happen in season one, which would lead to him not necessarily being a part of the cast. So they do add, add in all these flashbacks to the original founding of the Hunters group, which unfortunately just weighs down the entire season and distracts from things like Jennifer Jason Lee brutally murdering Nazis. And Jennifer Jason Lee brutally murdering Nazis is very fun to watch. All right, Hunter's second season, all eight episodes are out now. Uh, we're going to come back, hear about The Last of Us on HBO Max. I'm joined by television critics Angie Hahn of The Hollywood Reporter and Liz Shannon Miller of Consequence. We'll come back in just 60 seconds. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. We're talking television with critics Liz Shannon Miller and Angie Hahn. The Last of Us, based on the popular video game franchise. Um, it uh, is out now. Angie, what did you think of The Last of Us? I am not someone who is at is really at all familiar with the video games. I'm terrible at video games, so I didn't have that frame of reference going in, and as a result, I wasn't really sure how much it was going to appeal to someone like me. I ended up liking it a lot. I think the first episode is out now. I have seen the first four episodes. The first episode I thought was, you know, kind of a promising start. It's uh, Pedro Pascal is very likable. Bella Ramsey is she doesn't show up till later, but she, you know, she's also she's also really fun in the show. But it, it felt a little like, okay, this is sort of like The Walking Dead. We'll see where it goes. Um, but it was around the third episode that it really hooked me. So I guess what I would say is, if you watch the first episode and you thought this is pretty good, but I'm not entirely sure if I'm fully invested yet, give it a couple more episodes, and I think that many more people will be hooked by then. Liz, what do you think of The Last of Us? Yeah, I, I'm a little more familiar with the games and. I can say that, you know, the first the, the show is very close to the games in tone and in spirit, but they pull back a lot on the violence from the games. It's actually much less violent than you would expect. And yeah, there's definite Walking Dead comparisons to be made, but there's a lot of emphasis on character stories, character relationships. And as Angie as Angie said, 
uh, episode, you, at least give it until episode three. Episode three is a strong contender for one of the best episodes of television of the year, and it's only January. Uh, I was going to say, I understand video game fans are pretty happy with how faithful this is to the game. Yeah, uh, Neil Druckmann, who wrote and directed the original games, is a, a, like a co-creator on the show and was very actively involved in its uh, production. Yeah, Angie, you were going to say something. Sorry. Sorry. I was, I was going to say that even though I haven't played the games, you know, I have friends who have and they, they seem to really appreciate that there's a lot of like just little details that they got right, even though, you know, some of the more nitpicky ones, as Liz said, uh, do, do take issue with like, oh, this is less violent or whatever. Uh, but I also think that watching it as someone who is aware that it's based on a game but is not really familiar with the games, like you, there are some moments where you can kind of feel you can kind of feel the video game influence like there's a, a chasing in the first episode or like not chasing but you're driving through this all this chaos and i don't know if that's a scene from the game but it felt like something that i could imagine being in a video game so there's just just enough of that that you can kind of feel the influence of the source without feeling like it's a show where you need to be familiar with the source material to really engage with it and to enjoy it we're talking about The Last of Us. It's streaming on HBO Max rated TVMA. Uh, one episode out now. The next one releases on Sunday, this coming Sunday. Accused is airing on the Fox Network. Jimmy McGovern created the series. Sean Doyle, Neil Whiteley, and Abigail Breslin star in the crime anthology series. Angie. This is a anthology series, so every single episode is just a completely different standalone storyline and the uh, concept is that all of them start off in a courtroom with someone on trial and then as the episode goes on you find out what the story is from the defendant's point of view like what the crime is but also what led them up to the the moment of you know whatever they're on trial for and in theory it sounds like it could be fun in practice i just kept wondering i saw the first five episodes and i just kept wondering what am i supposed to be getting out of this i think the problem is that for a lot of these stories that you know 45 minutes to an hour is not really enough time to dig that deeply into the nuances to get really all that invested in the characters or what's going on with them i think the fact the way that it's structured so that for a long time you don't really know what the crime is also just you know, I spent so much of each episode just waiting to find out, like, okay, where where is this going before I can even try to figure out what it means? So I don't know. It's not horrible, but I found it to be just sort of dissatisfying. And there's so many other great crime dramas out there. I just don't really see a strong case for spending your time on this one. Accused, again, airing on Fox with episode one beginning this Sunday. There'll be 15 episodes, uh, presumably after airing, they'll be on Hulu as well. Uh, we talked earlier about the reboot of the 70s show as that 90s show. We also have a rebooted Night Court with John Larroquette returning, um, but in a different um, a position in the court than he held in the original series. Melissa Rauch plays the judge, uh, the role that Harry Anderson had had in the original. Uh, and I understand, Liz, you've had a chance to, to catch this. What did you think? Yeah, it's uh, so the the specifically the character Melissa Rauch is playing is uh, the is do, is Judge Abby Stone. She's the daughter of Harry Stone because uh, Harry Anderson passed away a few years ago, sadly. Uh, and the show really is interesting in terms of how it 
you know, it, it essentially proves how good the premise of the original series is like the, you know, night court is a fascinating place of a, a, a place when it comes to coming up with fun stories. And every time they bring in a new case, it's really fun to see, you know, what they've delivered and, you know, what, what, what kind of wacky shenanigans will result as a, as a result of this case being tried. Uh, it's, a little shaky still in terms of like establishing a new cast. John Larroquette is the only returning series regular, uh, but he is, you know, a great, a, a great anchor to the original series. And as soon as the supporting, the rest of the supporting cast kind of shakes out and fe- gets, you know, gets their feet underneath them as, as, you know, characters, I think it'll be a, a, a very, a very enjoyable show across generations again. Uh, Night Court airing on NBC and also uh, day after on the Peacock streaming network. Uh, Liz, can you also, speaking of Peacock, uh, share your thoughts about the documentary series Paul T. Goldman? Yes, Paul T. Goldman is, if, if you're subscribing to Peacock, it's worth checking this out. If you're a fan of cringe comedy or if you just enjoy, like, kind of reality skewing, bending uh, narratives, uh, essentially it's all the, the, this, the, the, the Paul T. Goldman in question is just this random guy who messaged the director of Borat's subsequent film, uh, subsequent movie film, uh, to talk about maybe making adapting this guy's random screenplay and it becomes this really interesting exploration of a person's psyche and how they experience the world and the way that they you know approach reality to you know handle their issues it's it's a really hard show to explain and as i've just (laughs) proven because i don't think i did a good job but you make me want to watch it though that's a good explanation it it is it's like it's a wild journey you you will not see a lot of the twists coming it's kind of a riff on true crime but with a real funny bend to it makes me want to watch it paul t goldman documentary series from jason woolener uh, who directed Borat's subsequent movie film, uh, the show doing dramatic reinterpretations of Paul's autobiography. Five episodes are out now. The last episode releases this coming Sunday. My thanks to television critics Liz Shannon Miller from Consequence, where she's senior entertainment editor, and Angie Hahn of The Hollywood Reporter. Reminder, of course, that Film Week comes up tomorrow at 10 o'clock. Our critics tomorrow will review when you finish Saving the World, starring Julianne Moore and Finn Wolfhard, among other films. Have a terrific day. Coming up next, it's NPR's Here and Now, then Fresh Air with Terry Gross at noon, and Austin Cross here with the first hour of NPR's All Things Considered at 1 o'clock. Have a great day. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubrias, the Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin vote. Tickets at theatricum.com.